And we're going to be working our way through Proverbs probably for a good few months here in Sunday evening services. And personally, I'm very excited about some of the great themes that the book of Proverbs got in it. One of the key themes that keeps creeping up as you work your way through Proverbs is this thing that we call the fear of the Lord. So tonight I'm going to tackle maybe a little bit of the fear of the Lord. I'm going to give you some random, random verses from Proverbs here, and you'll see the verses in brackets. Uh, so you can follow along. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For by me your days will be multiplied, years of your life will be added to you. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. Here the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord. puts it in a very positive light saying, this is a good thing to have. In fact, it says that if you think you're wise, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the actual beginning of wisdom. So the person who sounds like they're wise, but has absolutely no respect for God, according to the Bible, that ain't wisdom. That might be an intellect, that might be a high IQ. According to the Bible, that's not wisdom. The person who does no respect for God according to the Bible, is not wise. In fact, the Bible goes further in the book of Psalms and it says, it's the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. (laughs) So the atheist who spouted forth folly is a fool, according to the Bible. Because the atheist says in his heart, there's no God. And that's utter folly, according to the Bible. The beginning of wisdom is to not only believe there is a God, but to reverence and honor that God. Balance is really important. You see, what we, what we do is this. Quite often, we have a tendency to make God the way we would like him to be. All right? So what we do is we say, we'll make him nice. He'll love us lots. He'll bless us tons and make us very wealthy. And we'll call him Jesus. That'll do. Right. And we'll start a church and do stuff. Just because people in the name of Christianity talk a lot about God, it doesn't necessarily mean that what they say is accurate. What does the Bible actually say about God? Because if we're going to have an understanding of who God is, we can't just make up our own God in our heads. The Bible says He made us in His image. Yet so often we're trying to make Him in our image. We want to make Him a God like we would like. And we kind of put Him into this package and say, ah, that's God, just our own little personal God who will bless us and who will love us and who will always forgive us and, and so on. But actually, we sometimes leave out other aspects of God that the Bible equally talks about. So we've become imbalanced, all right? And as a result, you read the Bible and think, they don't talk about this in the church. This is scary. Well, tonight we're going to talk about that. (laughs) You could go to the Christian bookstop and say, can you recommend some books that tell me about the God who loves me? Oh, yeah, sure, we've got this whole section here. Okay, you go into the same Christian bookshop and say, can you recommend some books about the God that I should be terrified of? Sorry, we don't sell books like that. They don't sell very well. (laughs) But equally, that's the God of the Bible. The same Bible in Genesis 18 says, and this is one of the first titles given to God, will not the judge of all the earth do right? God is described as the judge of all the earth. One of the first titles given to God. In the same Bible, it says in 1 John 4 verse 8, Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. So God has got this dynamicness about him that we need to grasp. 
that God ain't just our buddy-buddy who loves us. He does love us. But he's also the judge, also to be feared and reverenced. So why should we fear God? I'm going to give us some very good examples from the Bible of why we should fear God. The first one's in Hebrews 11, verse 7, and it says, By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. God Almighty, this God of love, is also a judge, and he eradicated the human race in one fell swoop. Why? Because in God's sight the human race was wicked. God judged the human race, he judged sin, and only one family survived, and a ton of animals. That's serious. And this is the same God of love, he's also a judge. Noah realized what was coming, and the Bible says, in holy fear, he built an ark. God eradicated the earth in one fell swoop. Genesis 13, verse 13, we read, now the men of Sodom were wickedly, wicked and exceedingly, uh, ex- sorry, wicked exceedingly, and sinners against the Lord. And then we read on in the next chapter, sorry, the next in, in chapter 19, it says that then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and He overthrew those cities, and all the valley and all the inhabitants of those cities, and what grew on the grounds. God eradicated entire cities because of wickedness. Now, Abraham had a dialogue with God leading up to this and said, God, even if there's a, a few righteous people in that city, would you overthrow the city? And God said, no, I wouldn't. For the sake of even a few, I wouldn't touch the city. But these people were so wicked that there wasn't any fund among them that had any righteousness before God. They were wicked people and God absolutely eradicated those cities. God is vehemently against sin. He hates it. I get, I get nervous when I sin. God hates sin. God is going to deal with it brutally, as he has in many times past. God, we see, judging Egypt, he, he sent plagues, and uh, he basically tortured the Egyptians until they were willing to let God's people go. This is the same God, a God to be greatly feared. Ah, uh, Peter, that's the God. Of, that's the nasty God of the Old Testament. We're in the New Testament now, Peter. He's a happy God. Jesus is nice. We heard about him in Sunday school. He's the nice Jesus. He's a he's a hippie. He's got long flowing hair. He wears sandals. He's like Owen. He's really nice. And G- Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He wouldn't hurt a fly. He was nice, and he taught about peace and loving things. And this cool hippie who was a baby in the manger. That's all right. That's Jesus. So we're okay now, yeah, Peter? Well, unfortunately not. Because God isn't schizophrenic. God is the same God in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament. In Matthew 10 and verse 28, here this general Jesus, meek and mild, says, Do not fear those who can kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Hell is a real place, and God will destroy people in hell. We need to fear this God. We can't play games with him. We can't mollycoddle him. 
We can't get him to come to us on our terms. We must come to God on his terms. He is God and he is vehemently against sin and he is a great judge. In the New Testament as well, we find an example of Ananias and Sapphira. And uh, this was their pledge offering time. In Acts chapter 5 and verse 11 to 15, we read, oh, in fact, let me give you the context. This is the early church. It was growing in Jerusalem and many people were selling belongings and, and giving to the poor. But anyway, this couple called Ananias and Sapphira came along. Ananias came in first. They'd, they'd sold a plot of land and they would want to give to the poor. And that in itself is nothing, that's fantastic. But when they came to the Apostle Peter and they said, uh, Ananias said, here's the money that we got from the sale of the property. Now, it wasn't the money he got from the sale of the property. It was a small fraction of the money he got from the sale of the property. The problem wasn't that he hadn't given the whole amount. The problem was that he was kidding on that he had. When he knew full well he hadn't. So as he was saying that, he dropped dead. Right there, on the spot. So then a couple of stewards came and dragged him off to the Sunday school rooms. And then his wife came along, Sapphira. And then she stood before the Apostle Peter. And she said, and the Peter said, so how much was it for this amount you sold the land? And she said, yes, it was for that amount. And then she dropped dead. Literally dropped dead. You know, if that happened at offering time, right, you would say, no. You'd be like, how much did he give? No, (laughs) give us all, all, empty all in, right. This is what it says, this is what followed that moment in Acts 5 and verse 11 to 15. And then great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. At the hand of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico, but none of them, uh, none of the rest dared associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. There was an awesomeness about the early church. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly being added to the numbers to such an extent that they even carried the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on them. They were being miraculously healed. Great things were happening. The church was growing. But there was a sense of, wow, you don't mess with God. In the church at Corinth, we see the judgment of God at work there. And this is in the context of communion. I really apologize. I should have read this to you earlier. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27. It says that whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself. In so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For whoever eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself. And if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. If we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. Here, Paul was writing to a church. And this church was part of a very liberal city. And this very incredibly liberal city, there's tons of stuff going on. And a lot of that corruption was creeping into the church. So much so that at communion time, they were getting drunk. Now, you know you've got an alcohol problem if you get drunk at communion time. Right, first signs of a serious problem you've got there. The, uh, the guys at the front stones on the communion wine. That just does, doesn't sit right, does it? But that was what was happening in this church. And what was happening was literally people were dying. The judgment of God was falling on people because they were so disrespectful, not only to what they were doing, but also to each other. There was disunity and all sorts of stuff. 
If you're carrying attitudes towards people, carrying bitterness in your heart, and then you're taking communion, you've got to get yourself right with God and with others. You can't mess around with this stuff. Just as there's great blessing in taking it when you're right with God, there's also great judgment if you're not right with God. You see, folks, Jesus came at first to die on a cross so we could be forgiven. The Bible says he will return again, and this time he will come to judge the earth. He will judge everyone. He will judge us according to our sin. Here's the good news, that Jesus died for our sin, and if we accept his sacrifice, that judgment will have already passed us by. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But folks, we're going to have to stand before God. And we must live an appropriate and humble life before God. John Mackay was doing lectures last week. You remember on Thursday night, he was at the Edinburgh University. We hired the lecture hall there. And on Friday night, he was here in the building. It did some terrific lectures. I'm sure some of you benefited from, from hearing some of the things he said. Well, on the Thursday night, there was um, the Humanist Society turned out and they caused some great debates to go on and John Mackay did well to kind of talk with them and it was good, really good. Kept it lively. At the end of it, I was chatting to a guy and he was being very honest with me and said, are you telling me you believe in a God who would send people to hell? And I said... I have to say yes. And he said, if I, believed in a, if I could believe that there was a God like that, I'd be viciously angry at him and I would hate him. That's what he said. And I, I, I said to him, Listen, the difference between yourself and me is that for you, you're saying this hypothetically, if there was a God who would do this, you would feel like that. I'm in a place where I sense the reality of a God who would do that. And I'm not shaking my fist at God. I'm fearing Him. And I'm going to do everything I can to help, by the God's grace, to rescue as many people from that eternal torment as possible. It motivates me rather than demotivates me. You see, if you were a criminal and you were convicted of a, of a crime and you ended up in prison, the foolish thing would be to say, Oh, that government, that prison service... That would be the foolish thing to do. The wise thing to do would be this. I've done wrong. I'm paying a price for my wrong. And I'm going to be a good citizen from here on in. You see, if God was a big bully in the sky, then I would agree. You shake your fist at him. But if God is just and loving and fair, then you get on his side. You don't shake your fist at him. It's called the fear of God. You humble yourself before him and you fear God. Okay, let me ask you a question. Who killed Jesus? That's a big question. You could argue, well, it was the Jews and the Romans. They teamed together to murder Jesus. You could argue that Satan was the person plotting behind the murder of Jesus. And you could argue that from the Last Supper when the Bible says Satan put in the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. But let me put something revolutionary to you, and it's from the Bible, that God was behind the murder of Jesus Christ, God the Father. Listen to this in Isaiah chapter 53. I'm going to take a collection of verses from here. Surely our griefs he himself bore. This is Jesus on the cross, dying on our place so we could be forgiven. Our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted 
But he was pierced through for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. So the reason he was there, folks, was for us. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Who caused it? The Lord, God the Father, caused the iniquity of all the earth to fall on God the Son. He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. We should have got it, but he took it for us. But the Lord was pleased to crush him. God the Father was pleased to crush God the Son. Putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. God the Father put my sin and your sin on God the Son, on his only Son. And he was willing to have him beaten, scourged, his back ripped open, a crown of thorns put in his head, and be nailed to a cross. To be mocked and reviled by the people he created. God the Father was willing for his Son to go through that, and he instigated it, according to the Bible. The Lord, as it says in Isaiah, the Lord was pleased to crush him, to putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Some say foolishly, oh, well, God won't judge us for our sin. God will just wink at me and say, it's all right. God's a God of love, you know. God will let me off with it. If the father was willing to have his son crucified, nailed to a Roman cross, beard plucked from his face, crown of thorns placed in his head, mocked and reviled and spat on, I do not think that if God was willing to do that to his own son for us to be forgiven, God will just wink at you and say, it's all right. Sin is ugly and God is vehemently against it. And in his deep love for us, he was willing to put his own son through that death and that crucifixion in order that you and I could be completely forgiven, rescued, and saved. That's good news. That's incredible good news. That God would love us that much. How does this apply to our lives? Well, first tip is this. Deal with your sin. I'm saying it to me as well. Deal with my sin. Let's deal with our sin. Philippians 2 verse 12 says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Walk before God humbly. Now, work out your salvation. We're talking to people who are saved. People who have been rescued. Work it out now. Not, now, hey, I'm saved now. I can do what I want. Hey, come on. Walk humbly before God. Walk this out with fear and trembling. Secondly, I want to advise us to walk humbly before God. Proverbs 5.21 says, For the ways of a man are before, before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches his paths. We've, we've got to be people who are realizing that actually God sees everything about our lives. He sees us in private just as much as he does in public. So why are you fooling around in private? Acting like no one sees. That's all right, as long as you don't get caught. You've been caught. God saw and folks, that's far worse than any other human being seeing. Oh, I don't want wife to see. Hey, God sees. What would my parents think? God sees. What if my mates found out? God sees. That's the worst. This God in heaven who, who is pure and perfect and loving as well as a judge sees. So we must walk humbly and holy before God.
Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Here's a slide of a guy in a canoe here. Look at this. It says here, uh, sitting in a 3.8 meter sea kayak and watching a 4 meter great white shark approach you is a fairly tense experience. Wow, you wouldn't know whether to paddle like crazy or just hold it calm because paddling would attract the shark. <laughs> you know, you don't know. Dear me. One thing for sure, you wouldn't get out and swim, all right? You just... <laughs> Point is, that's how you f- could potentially feel with a created thing trying to pull you down. Some people feel scared of human beings. But we should be fearful of God. Throughout the Bible, you have people who come into the presence of God. Like Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, the Bible says, he saw the Lord high and exalted. And the Bible says he fell down. And he says, woe is me, I am undone. We see in Daniel, when Daniel had those great visions of Jesus, he fell on his knees as if he was dead. Mary, even when just an angel appeared to Mary, the first thing the angel said is, do not fear. Why is it every time God or an angel appears to a human being, the first thing he says, don't fear. I'll tell you why. Because they're pooping themselves right there. Don't fear. Too late. I'm serious. Coming into the presence of God. Now, listen, that's just like, it's like the curtain's been lifted and you suddenly see the reality of the presence of God. Is it not the case that God is everywhere all the time anyway? Ah. So this is how we'd be scared of a shark. How much should we be living in fear of God? Not in a dread that kind of, because he's still our father, okay? But with it, I'm trying to emphasize the, there's been an imbalance. Oh, that's all I'm saying. There's been an imbalance. We treat God like our buddy. We treat him with disrespect. But he's God Almighty. And we've got to have a deepest reverence and fear of him. I want to encourage us, another application for life is have a right attitude before God about his Bible, the Word. It says in Isaiah 66 and verse 2, this is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit, who trembles at my Word. Who trembles at my Word. Some people say, well, we'll leave that bit and I like this book and I hate that book. It's rubbish. I don't understand that. Hey, this is God's Word we're talking about. And the Bible says that God likes hanging out with people who tremble at his Word. Have a a sense of awe and respect for God's very Bible. Let me draw this to a conclusion. So you're saying, thank God. The fear of God, how does this all work out? How is it that God can be a God of love, yet a God of such judgment? A God who would be willing to bring such judgment against human beings because of sin, yet at the same time, he is a God of love. How is that possible? Imagine a courtroom setting where the judge is sitting there in the courtroom and you've got the guilty person standing in the docks. The courtroom proceedings have started. The court has hearing the evidence against this individual. It is incredibly clear that this individual is guilty as charged. The judge slams his hammer down and says, guilty. The price is this, and he pronounces the sentence. The young man knows for an absolute fact he is no way ever of paying that price. So he hangs his head in shame. He knows he's done it. He can't argue the case. He knows he's done it. 
then an amazing thing happens. The judge lays down his hammer, takes off his robe, comes down from his podium, goes down to the young man and says, he writes the check, pays the fine and says, now you can go. That's what God did. God Almighty took on human flesh. Jesus Christ hung and died on a cross, writing the check, paying the price for our sin. And God is a judge, but he's also God of love. And in that moment, God paid the price for your sin so that you do not need to go to a lost eternity in hell, suffering forever for paying the price for your own sin. But you have accepted the price that was paid for you. You walk free. Now live grateful. You've been acquitted because your Father has paid the price for your sin. Romans 5 and verse 8 to 9 says, But God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, shall we be saved from the wrath of God through him. We talk about being saved. Saved from what? Saved from God. You're saved from God. You're saved from the wrath of God. He's mad at you. He's also mad about you. And that's the incredible dynamic that the Bible presents to us. He's mad at you and me because of sin. But he's mad about you because you're his children. And he paid the highest price for you to be forgiven. So there's a lot at stake, folks. But there's a huge price being paid. And that's why it says in James 2 and verse 13 that mercy triumphs over judgment. And the reason mercy triumphs over judgment is because God took the judgment for us so that his desire to show mercy could be expressed. Mercy is God withholding from us that which we deserve. Grace is God giving to you that which you don't deserve. Forgiveness. A new start. A new life. So folks, let's live in deep love with this great God who we can call Daddy, Father. But at the same time, let's not lose the balance of the fact is this. He's judge. He's God Almighty. He's the creator. And he will eventually judge this whole world. And let's live with this tension in our hearts. And this will keep us from sin. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you have no respect for God, then according to the Bible, you haven't even begun to be wise.